Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day, moms. Thank you for spending your Mother's Day with us. And all those at Cincy and online, thanks for joining us. Uh, Bainbridge isn't joining us by simulcast today, and there's a reason for that. I've got some news to share with you. Drum roll, please. Um, we have been praying for years. We have been in a construction project since last summer, and this past week, we we're excited to receive our certificate of occupancy for the new campus. So you can give God a big hand. Give God a big hand. Randy and your crew, they have done an awesome job. Thank you so much. So they are in there this morning. Pastor Rick is preaching the first message and kind of christening that facility. And uh, next Sunday is our official launch and grand opening. So we're going to celebrate that in a special way next week at all of our campuses. So we have an awesome, awesome God, don't we? Um, today, here, we're going to wrap up our parable series. We've been looking at stories Jesus told that really messed up religious people. And uh, what Jesus would do when he would teach is he would often use human illustrations and human stories to present a heavenly truth, and he would do it in a way that was very accessible to people who were far from God and didn't make a lot of sense to people that thought they were close to God. And he was very intentional with this. He did it through his whole life. Today's story is one of the last stories, one of the last parables he told. In fact, on this day, it's Wednesday, two days before his crucifixion, he tells a series of three stories. We're going to look at one of those three, and that's it. Those are his last parables, and they're pretty significant. So turn there, if you would, to Matthew 25. Uh, you can use a chair Bible, um, a Bible app, whatever you'd like to do. Um, but I'll give you a little background on what was happening that Wednesday. Jesus had uh, gone into Jerusalem. He knew the end was coming. No one else really did. And Jesus is making statements that confuse people, and he's talking kind of about things that are going to happen, like this enormous, gorgeous temple, the center of worship for the Jewish faith, and he, and he mentioned it's going to be destroyed. And his followers don't get that at all. I mean, the temple is where it's at, the temple is where God lives, the temple is where they worship, and they don't quite understand what Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus notices their, their looks, he, he hears their questioning spirit, and he kind of unravels for them what it's going to look like in the last days. You ever heard that term, last days? You ever seen the guy standing on the street corner, the end is near, signs? Well, well Jesus is like, well, let me explain for you what that's going to look like. And he gives them a little speech. And Matthew 24, the chapter before the one we're looking at, is his speech. And if you read Matthew 24, you'll realize that it reads like today's newspaper. It's incredible when Jesus describes the last days to read it, from 2,000 years ago, Jesus' description, and to look at today's newspaper and like, oh boy. And then Jesus makes a statement. He says, those who live to see these signs, they're not going to die before these things happen. Before the judgment day comes, I return. They're going to live to see this. Okay, so he drops this stuff on them. They're very confused, and then he starts his storytelling. And here's the story that he gives to them in Matthew 25. He says this, at that time, the kingdom of heaven, so he's talking about the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the start of the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet 
the bridegroom. Okay, that makes no sense, does it? <laughs> Stop for just a moment, uh, because I've got to explain the way that Jewish culture worked to understand this story. In the ancient Near East, the way that they would do weddings was very different from our weddings. They didn't, I think the best part of the way they did it is they didn't do the electric slide at the reception. They did it very, very differently. So a wedding in ancient culture, ancient Near East culture, was the largest social event in the entire community. And when it happened, the entire town would come and celebrate that. Literally, the entire town would be part of that celebration. It would be a long time in coming because it would be initiated by a contract between two fathers who decided that they wanted their kids to marry. And so two fathers would kind of make a contract with each other that my son's going to marry your daughter. They'd make an arrangement. It was called an arranged marriage. Is there anyone grateful that we don't do that in America? But most of the world still does it that way, ironically. Arranged marriages. In the East, they still do this. So uh, two dads would come together. They'd decide their kids would get married. And then what would happen is it would start the, we call it engagement, but it was much more than that in their culture. It was called betrothal. Betrothal was legally binding. In the eyes of the law, you were married. You could only get out of it through divorce or death, kind of a bad way to get out of it. Divorce or death were the only ways out. But you couldn't consummate that marriage, that betrothal, until after the wedding. Now, the way that it would work is the groom-to-be would take that betrothal period to go make sure his job is nailed down, He'd make sure his trade is all ready. He's got his work. He's got provision for his future family. He would prepare his house. Often the way they do it is they'd add on to mom and dad's house in the basement. No, they'd add on a wing and families would kind of live together. And so when the groom had finished preparations with his, his trade and his, his income and preparations with the house, what he would do is he'd gather his guys, his groomsmen, and he'd go marching into the town where his bride, his future bride lived, and he would gather her and her bridesmaids, and it would be at night, and they would go and they'd take their torches, their lamps, and they would start a parade through town. And you would know at night when you'd see this parade through town and all this excitement and, and the bridal party would be carrying these lamps, these torches, it's festival time, it's party time. And it wouldn't just launch a feast that night, it would launch a week-long festival. Fun, food, drink, games, partying, no electric slide. It was a wonderful week-long wedding feast. So Jesus is telling a story about the groom being ready. He's been preparing. The groom now comes to get his bride. He comes to these 10 bridesmaids, these 10 virgins who are the bridesmaids, and this is the story that we're jumping into. Makes a little more sense, I hope. Okay, let's restart. At, the time, at that time, the kingdom of heaven would be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So they're starting the processional leading to the, the banquet feast. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Okay, now there's some truth here that Jesus is dropping, and, and the idea is, 
the, the wedding party is getting very excited, but they, they're also getting a little bit tired waiting for the groom. Maybe he's finishing up construction. Maybe he can't get his certificate of occupancy to bring his bride home. Who knows? But he's a long time in coming. It's taking a while, and so they fall asleep. Now, is there anything wrong with sleeping? Thank you. Of course not. God gives his sleep to those he loves. So sleep is a good thing. Sleep's not a bad thing. There's no indication here that sleep was wrong for them to do in preparation for when the groom comes. The problem that you kind of get here is that Five of them are sleeping peacefully, and five are sleeping in this false sense of confidence or false sense of security. They feel like they're ready, but they're, they're clearly not. Look at verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come to meet him. Could you imagine launching the wedding festival at midnight? That's an unusual time to have a banquet, but that's when the groom arrived. So, so, so the call goes out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins, these ten bridesmaids, woke up. They trimmed their lamps, so they prepared these lamps for the, the, the processional. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. All right, now their lamps were going out because they were running out of oil. And I'm sure these five bridesmaids had all kinds of good reasons why they weren't fully stocked with oil. I mean, maybe they had been to the hairdresser that day and they just didn't have time to stop at Dollar General on the way home and get more oil. I don't know, but they probably had pretty good reasons why they didn't have oil prepared for this lengthy processional to get to the feast. The bottom line, though, the excuses don't really matter because the big day's here, it's midnight, and they're just not ready. Well, they, they got to get ready. This is pretty crucial, important. So look at verse 9. No, the other ones replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Okay, now pause for a moment. Why didn't the first five, these wise ones, share with the other five? Well, if they did share the oil that they had, the problem that they're realizing is they're not going to have enough either. So you can either have five bridesmaids that make it to the feast, or you can have none. There's no way you can get ten there. It's just not going to work. There's not enough oil to go around. And there's a little truth here that Jesus kind of drops in the form of a story. And that truth is that you can't ride into heaven on somebody else's coattails. I hear people all the time say that, you know, when we talk about Jesus, talk about faith, talk about heaven, they say, well, my parents were really good people. Or my grandma was a, was a really strong Christian lady who prayed all the time. Or my uncle was a pastor. And that's great. I mean, that and a dollar will get you a small coffee at McDonald's. That won't do anything for you. You can't take anybody else's legacy or faith and somehow monetize it or, or utilize it to gain entry to heaven. It doesn't work that way. In heaven someday, you're there alone <laughs> at the judgment day, you and Jesus, no one else, which means I can't blame anyone else and I can't call on anybody else. I can't do the phone a friend thing. It's mano y mano. It's me and Jesus. That's how this works. And so these five bridesmaids that weren't ready, there's nothing on that day that anybody else can do to help them to be ready. Nothing. 
And so here's what they do. Verse 10, while they were on their way to buy the oil, they're running to the dollar store, going to grab some oil. The problem is it's midnight. Nothing's open. The gas station doesn't sell any. When they went to buy their oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And then there's this haunting phrase. What does it say next? And the door was shut. They went. They tried to get oil. They were unsuccessful. It made them late. They go to get into this banquet. And the door shut. And remember, who's, inviting, who's invited to this wedding banquet? The whole town. But you've got to be ready when the groom comes. You've got to join in the processional when he's going past. And this bridal party, only half of them were truly ready. Verse 11, later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Ouch! You can imagine the scene of these these five who are late and they're knocking on the door and the bridegroom looks through the peephole and they're like, we're here. He's like, I don't know you. Like, We're part of the bridal party. No, you're not. You're, You're not. The bridal party was ready for me. So so the crazy part of this story is that at that bride's house that night, how many bridesmaids were there? There were 10. How many were probably dressed for the wedding? 10. How many had their lamps? 10. But how many were ready for the groom? Five. How many were allowed into the wedding feast? Five. These other five, they looked the part. They, they looked the part, but it's only when they went to light their lamps that you would realize, oh, they're not ready. This isn't going to work. They had this form of appearance externally where you would have thought their bridal party, where you would have thought they're going to the wedding. But when the rubber hit the road, it revealed they weren't. And and Jesus is trying to explain to his followers, he's trying to explain a really hard truth. This is, again, one of the last stories he told. And this hard truth is is in the final story he told, and later in this chapter, the sheep and the goats. And the sheep and the goats story is that someday the shepherd's going to come and he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And the sheep come in and the goats don't. The five Bridesmaids who are ready come in and, and the five who aren't don't. And then the door gets shut. So there's this tragic idea that Jesus is sharing with his followers two, day, two days before he gets crucified. And it's this idea that many people who are religious, many people who look the part, act the part, speak the part, many churchgoers, if you talk about today, are not true believers. And they're not going to realize that until that last day. That's haunting to me. I mean, it's haunting to consider if this is in any way a proportion that Jesus is sharing with us, that maybe half 
of the people in church who are Christians are not truly followers of Jesus. And the challenge is that only on that day is that going to be revealed. Only on that day is there going to be this kind of sifting or weeding out or, or separation. Until then, the church is filled with genuine bridesmaids and frauds. And, and, and so it's this really challenging, challenging story that Jesus makes. And, and the other part of this challenge is this day that the bridegroom showed up with his, groom, with his groomsmen was a day that was, everyone was hoping for it, looking forward to it, but it was still unexpected the day he arrived, especially the time. No one expected him at midnight. And it's this same idea Jesus is positing for this day of judgment, the day he returns. It's going to be a day that people just don't expect, especially a time they don't expect. If you followed the news yesterday, you know that a lot of people were looking up to the sky, hoping to run away from a falling Chinese spaceship. Did anyone read that in the news? It was falling from the sky yesterday, and I had kind of blown up and broken up in outer space, and no one knew where it was going to fall, and they were talking about where do you stand on planet Earth to avoid it. There was nowhere, because no one knew where it was going to fall or when it was going to fall. And there was trackers online where you could track where pieces were falling. There was this one massive metal pole that fell in a, in a little African town and villagers were standing by it and they got pictures and posted on Twitter and they're like, it's coming down, there it is. Thankfully, no one was under this thing when it dropped out of the space. And, and, and so yesterday was the day where, okay, we kind of know at some point today it's gonna drop, but we don't know where and we don't really know when today. And with the return of Jesus, there's that same sense of anticipation yet uncertainty. We know it's coming but we're not sure when, we're not sure how, we're not sure all the things that are associated with it. There's a lot we don't understand about it. Well, look at verse 13. This is how Jesus ends his story. He says, therefore, keep, what does he say? Watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, in this little teaching time with his followers, this was literally the fifth time he had told them to keep watch. The fifth time he tells them to be alert. Because you don't know when. The reason that you prepare for an unexpected event is because it's, it's something that you're anticipating, but you don't know when it's going to happen. You know it's coming. There's something within you that you're like, I know this is going to happen. I, I know this moment is coming, but I'm, I just am not sure how to prepare for it because... Should I go to sleep or, or should I not? Should I make preparations or should I not? Is the world ending? How many of us lived through Y2K and wondered when that was going to hit, if it was going to hit, what was going to hit? And there's always this sense of uncertainty with the unknown and is the end near. And so this is one of Jesus' last stories. The parable of the ten Bridesmaids. You want to hear one of my favorite sounds in the world? I hate this sound. Anyone know what this is? This is my wonderful welcome to the morning. 
This is my trusty alarm clock by my bed, battery powered, so in a power outage, it still goes off. By nature, I'm a night person, so if I had my way, I would go to bed at 1, 2, 3 a.m. every night. Um, but that means I don't like the morning, I don't like this thing. But the funny thing is, I set it every night. I know it's going off every morning, but it always catches me off guard. And, I, and I'm not a big fan of it. It does its job, and I'm grateful it does its job, but I really don't like it. And it's funny, every time I go to bed, I know morning's coming. I know it's coming. I know how I'm going to feel when it comes. Like, I don't want to get out of bed. Like, I hit the snooze. Let's take another five minutes type thing. But the idea with Jesus' return is it's, it's a similar thing where I know it's coming. As a follower of Jesus, there's a part of me that's hoping for it to come. But how prepared am I really? How much oil do I have set aside ready for Jesus' return? And, and let me flip this to you. How prepared are you really for Jesus' return? Let's back up in chapter 24. I want to read for you what Jesus said about this return and, and the timing of it, okay? Chapter 24, verse 36, he talks a little bit more about the timing of his return. Look at verse 36. He said, about that day or hour, who knows? No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, so don't try to get an angel to tell you when it's going to happen. They don't even know. Nor the Son, even Jesus when he was on earth didn't know, but only the Father. Listen, have you ever heard someone predict the year or the day that Jesus is coming back? None of them have ever been right, and they never will be. So when you hear someone predict, I know the year, I know the day, you can just instantly say, okay, cool, you're a fraud. Thanks for exposing yourself. Because even the angels don't know this. Even Jesus when he was on earth didn't know this. And then it says this, this is fascinating, verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the son, at the coming of the Son of Man. So I always would read this part, and I used to think, okay, what were the days of Noah like? The days of Noah were marked by widespread violence and evil and drunkenness and immorality. And so, okay, I get it. In that day when there were very few people of faith, it's going to be that same way at the last days. So, there was a part of me that's like, okay, it's definitely not there yet. We're definitely not quite there. There's a lot of people that believe and follow Jesus. In Noah's day, there were how many that followed God? One guy and his family. There was eight. But that's not what it's saying at all. It's not saying the, the way it was in the days of Noah is the way it's going to be when Jesus returned. In fact, he explains this. Verse 38, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. So literally, Noah for decades had been building a ship in the middle of a desert. You think people look at you like you're crazy? Poor Noah, building a ship in the middle of the desert where it didn't rain. Literally, it had never rained there before. He's building this ship in the middle of the desert, and he's telling people the end is coming. I'm telling you the end is coming. God's telling me the end is coming. The world's going to flood. The world's going to flood. Get on my ship with me and my family. And they're, of course, doing what any of us would have done. They're laughing at this crazy lunatic. He was the Elon Musk of his day. <laughs> and, and, and so he's building this ship, and, and, and they're like, you're, you're a crazy old man. You have no idea what you're doing. And he's like, it's coming. I don't know when it's coming. I just know it's coming. 
So the day that the flood came was a normal day. The sun rose, there were people eating meals, there were people that were at wedding feasts, doing wedding. I mean, it was just a normal day. There was no indication that this day was any different. But on that day, verse 39, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now, the day the flood came, it wasn't just like rain kept coming and flooding. It was the fountains of the deep broke open and water gushed out from beneath the earth. And so it was this cataclysmic, watery event that just was, was incredibly fast. And it said, and they knew nothing that would happen till the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Man, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. It's going to be that quick. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. That quick. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. Okay. Last week and for a while now, we've been talking in the parables about death and how death is this expected, unexpected event. I, I checked this before I came up here this morning. The death rate is still at 100%. But the challenge is, I may not even have until my death. This concept of Jesus' return means that I might be going about my normal life, healthy as anything, not going to die. It's just Jesus is going to return. There's going to be this trumpet sound, if you read prophecy. And in that moment when the trumpet sounds... That's it. The door closes. No second chances. You're either prepared or you're not. There's this sifting out of those who are true and those who are false followers, and that's it. That's it. And it's very much like the day that the flood came on the earth back in Noah's day. You can imagine the people running to Noah's ship. Like, okay, we believe now. Like, can you let us in? We're flooding down here. And the problem was, what was the problem with the ship at that day? The door was shut. Noah hadn't closed it. His family hadn't closed it. God had told him go in and God had shut the door. It was shut. There was no second chance. And so you can only imagine the people on the outside banging like, let us in, let us in. And Noah's like, guys, I, I, I can't. I would, I'd love to, I can't. I can't let you in. It's too late. I've been telling you for years. Why wouldn't you believe me? And Jesus says it's in the same way that this day of judgment is going to arrive. Two people are going to be working together. Two people are going to be doing stuff together. One will be gone instantly to meet Jesus and go to the final battle. Another will be left. It's going to be that instantaneous and that quick and no second chance. And so Jesus just keeps saying this thing, and it's how he ended the story. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, when Jesus says keep watch, what he's not saying is, all right, I'm just going to sit and look at the sky and wait for the trumpet. That, that's not at all what he's saying, right? Keep watch means there's this, there's this watchfulness that should be marking my life since I don't know the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return. It, it, put in another way, Jesus is saying this, 
You need to live like I'm coming, live like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. But a key word here is live. You you, got to live. You can't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. And maybe, maybe you think about this and you hear this and you think, okay, I kind of get this concept. This is, this is a country song, isn't it? Live like you're dying, Tim McGraw. Yeah, you know, he got a scan. This guy that the song's about, he got a scan. He found out he had some terminal condition. And so when he found out he was dying, what did he do in the country song? He went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, seconds on a bull bull named, you feel a song coming on some of you? So if you read the song, it's a kind of cool song, and and, and what's he doing? He's doing his bucket list. He's like, I I only got X amount of time, I got my bucket list, And, and so here's the challenge, this is not at all what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that because he could come back at any moment, you better be urgent about your bucket list. It's very different from the world's concept of you don't know if you're going to get another day. The world's concept is YOLO. You only live once. And it's this concept that my best life is now. And so I've got a bucket list. I've got a limited amount of time. I better get as much knocked off my bucket list before I die or before this happens. And this is not what Jesus is saying at all. Here's the thing, if your best life is now, you got a big problem. Does anyone pick up what I'm putting down? Jesus' concept was just the opposite. When's your best life? On the other side. If you're living your best life now, if you're expecting your best life now, yikes. Right, the other side is going to be pretty bad. I don't need to live and expect like my best life should be now. I need to live and expect in a way that I realize that my, my best life is the life on the other side. That's what I need to be focused on. That's what I need to be living for. And I need to be in the spirit of watchfulness and preparedness. And even, I'm, I'm going to use a word here that I think we've lost in the American church, Urgency. Spiritual urgency. I, I have friends who are preppers, and you know what a prepper is? They really, before Y2K, that was a big thing. Preparing for cataclysmic economic disaster, whatever, right? Preparing for upstate New York getting invaded by New York City people. Um, <laughs> and, and so preppers will have a stockpile of food and water and ammunition and guns and preparing to defend their family and their food and and their provisions. There is a sense that you and I should be spiritual preppers. Not in the sense where we're hoarding for ourselves and our family, but in a sense for I am fully prepared for the cataclysmic day of God's judgment that's coming. I know this world isn't going to last. I know that the day Jesus returns, it's too late for anybody that I love. It is too late the day Jesus comes back. It has got to be before that day that they receive him. And and the concern that I have, that that your leaders here at Berean have, and this is something we've been praying about and talking through, is that we are, 
and I'm, I'm going to be general here, not everyone fits this, but we are kind of in a, in a slump spiritually, many of us. I mean, the last 14 months have been just heaven on earth, haven't they? The last 14 months have been some of the most frustrating, painful, discouraging times of many of our lives. Difficult, challenging, tense. And now we're, we're, we're kind of 14 months in. Did any of us still think we'd be here 14 months later? And there's a sense of disillusionment. There's a sense of disillusionment. I think many expected, like, after the election, oh, get all that behind us. And it didn't go away. Right? And you think, okay, you know, get to the other side. And here's, here's my concern for us. I think many of us are more excited about the end of COVID than we are the start of heaven. I think a lot of us are more passionate about defending our view of, 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 of politics and vaccines and mass than we are passionate about sharing our story of life changed by Jesus Christ. And I think we're in trouble. And I think if, if Jesus came back tonight, are we ready? Are we ready? Which group of bridesmaids are we? Which part of the, are the wedding part of like, I, I didn't know it, but I, I knew it. I was prepared for it. Thank you, Jesus. Or are we going to be like the ones like, could, could you hold on a minute? There's some things I got to do. There's some things. I, I, I thought I had more. I thought I had more time. And Jesus like, it doesn't work that way. The day that I return, the door is shut. There's no second chance. There's no extra time. There's no quick trip to the dollar store. That's it. The door is shut. Time is up. And there's this cosmic clock that is counting down to the day of Jesus' return. And you and I can't get a glimpse of that clock. But when you read Matthew 24 and you look at the signs of the end times, I'm telling you, he describes what many of us are living through right now. And I don't know, I'm not going to be like one of those guys that's going to say it's in my lifetime that it's going to happen. I'm not going to say that because I'd be a fraud. But I'm telling you something, I can say unequivocally, we are closer to Jesus' return today than at any other point in history. I can say that for certainty. We are closer than the guy who wrote this, Matthew the tax collector. We're closer than Paul the apostle who thought it was going to be in his lifetime. We're 2,000 years closer. What if it was tomorrow? What if it was tomorrow? So here's the challenge for today. As we kind of have experienced and seen a lot of us in this spiritual slump, distracted by everything going on around us in the world, we say, okay, there's, there's one of two things we can do. We can either ride this out or we can call it out. You could probably guess which direction we're going today. We're just going to call it out. We're going to say, okay, many of us are distracted. If Satan can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. He just distracts us from the things that are important and right and true. So today we want to call it out and ask you something. We're going to ask that this week be a week for us to get back on track. 
we're asking that this week, we're calling our church family to a week of prayer and fasting. Now, some of you heard that and you're immediately like, a week of fasting, I'm out. Okay, no, no, I'm not saying a week of fasting. I'm saying this, sometime during this week, we're asking if medically able, if you would give up a meal or two or more, and the time you would have been preparing that meal and eating that meal, you get off alone and get with God. Get on your knees, get on your face, and get right with him. I don't know. I don't know for you what it looks like. I don't know if you're right or not. I don't know if you're ready or not. I'm not even sure about myself how ready I am. But I'm going to take some time this week. I'm going to do that with you. Do some fasting. Right? Maybe you're going to skip a lunch. Maybe you're going to skip you know, a, a, a few lunches, whatever. And you're going to go and you're going to spend time alone with God some prayer. What is fasting? Fasting is a spiritual discipline that is intended to be for either a major decision or a time of crisis. And the goal is use fasting to get God's attention. You're giving up something, but ultimately fasting is really to get our attention. Do you know something crazy about the human body? We don't need three meals a day. It's proven. We are just addicted to food. That's why we do three meals a day. We don't need that. And so your body will be screaming at you. You can actually say no to it. You can ignore it. And with your soul, focus on God. Some of you might do an extended fast of a couple of days. Listen, if you break through that hunger, which maybe you've never done before, if you break through it and you get into like day two, you'll be amazed your body just shuts up. It shuts up. It's cool. And when your body shuts up, your mind clears up. No more blood is going into the digestive system. The blood goes to your brain, and you think clearer than you've ever thought before. So some of you might do an extended fast, and you're going to break through that hunger, get to the other side of it, and you're going to be amazed at your ability to think clearly and converse with God, study his word. It's a really cool thing. Now here's how we want to end our week of prayer and fast. Next Sunday, we're going to have a celebration. We're going to celebrate what God's done out at Bainbridge. And we're going to do a grand opening, joyous day. They're going to join us a little bit by video here. It's, it, it's going to be cool. Um, next Sunday night, we're going to do uh, open house out there starting at 7. And then at dark, we're going to do a fireworks display out in Bainbridge. And with a bang that the community can't miss, we're going to tell them we're here and we love you. And we want you here. So... A week to refocus, to get back to what matters, to be the five bridesmaids who were ready, capped off by a weekend of celebration, saying, okay, Jesus, I'm ready and I'm back on mission. My life is going to have a singular pursuit again of making more and better Jesus followers. We as a church, we're going to have a singular pursuit again of making more and better Jesus followers. We refuse to be distracted by the things of this world. When Jesus comes back, man, I want to be the one at the door saying, I'm ready. I'm ready. And I have people in my life that are ready because I've opened my mouth and shared with them. And I anticipated that you'd be back. I want to be ready and focused. Because my friends, 
Jesus genuinely could come back tonight. He genuinely could come back tomorrow. That's pretty exciting. But we need to make sure that we're watchful and ready. Would you bow with me in prayer? When we expect that something's going to happen, it just changes. It changes how we live. And I think maybe many of us today, we just, need to, we just need to get a jump start back on that expectation of Jesus' return. We need to be looking forward for his return. In fact, Scripture promises there's a crown. There's an extra reward in heaven for those who are eagerly anticipating the Lord's return. And so are you watchful? Are you ready? I think for many of us, we feel an urgency but it's for our team to win the ball game or, or it's for the weekend to arrive or it's for vacation to please get here or it's for retirement to get here sooner. Or, but, but where's our urgency for Jesus' return? Where's the oil in our jars where we're ready for him to come back at any moment? We're prepared to do the, the, the processional to the wedding feast. M- Revivals in the history of our nation have started with one main thing, and it was spiritual urgency. It's when Christians woke up. And so I'm asking you, friend, are you spiritually awake? Are you spiritually awake? And are you living with an urgency and a watchfulness? Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this story. Thank you so much for the heads up. (laughs) There's no warning bell before you come that it's going to be instantaneous and unexpected. Father, help us to live in a way that honors you. This week, I pray for us as a church family that we can get some time alone with you, that we could do some prayer, some fasting, and that we can just get our head back in the game, that we can wake up spiritually and focus on our walk with you. God, I pray that next Sunday when we get back together, that we will be able to just be focused on what matters, that we will be able to celebrate what you have done, and we will get back to the business of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we will be people with a faith that is stronger than anything out there. Thank you for showing us how to live. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.